Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we're just going to look at verse 2 in that passage, and then we're going to launch from there into some other areas. And the title of today's message is The Reason for the Chaos. And the reason that's entitled that way is we're going to encounter chaos immediately right after this initial creation. And we're going to have to talk about what happened, what transpired, what caused this chaos. So the first verse we looked at last week, and again, I just want to put it up on the board for you. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we talked about last week is it's a perfect state that it was a point in time, a distinct period of time that is independent from the rest of the narrative. What follows after this passage, it doesn't lend itself towards it, that something happened. And we talked about space, time, and matter being created by God and creating the the whole universe as we know it. But at that point, everything was good. Everything was great. And this is before the six days of creation that you see with the rest of Genesis. Now, here's where it gets tricky. So follow me or I'll lose you like a wet bar of soap. When we go into the next passage, immediately you're confronted with a new topic. Let's go to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Immediately, in verse 2, something changes. And you don't see it in the English, really. It's in the Hebrew. And what follows is something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, let's unpack verse 2 just a little bit. So the first thing we want to look at is the earth. What you see here in this passage, and you can see, I put the Hebrew out so you can see it, it's ve-ha-aretz. And the issue is, and this is why I don't, I want to get too technical and into the weeds, but you have to know this. The ve there, you're not seated in your English, but the ve is at the beginning of the word, and ve could mean and or now. And what you see from the Hebrew is this is what's called a disjunctive vav, V-A-V, a disjunctive vav, which means that if it's conjunctive vav, it means and. If it's a disjunctive vav, it means now. So the proper translation that should be in your English should say now ha-aretz, va ha now the earth, which introduces the idea that this is not sequential. It is not an intermediate state between verse 1 and verse 3 that something has happened. And in the Hebrew, the subject is now coming before the predicate in this passage, which means this, that the author, which is Moses, wants to say something about the subject, which is the ha'aretz, the earth, and it describes the earth before the six days of creation that something happened. Now this happened is what Moses said. It was created perfect. Everything was great. There was a period of time before time, and everything was great in that period of time, and then something happened to the earth is what he's trying to say. So let's move to the next phrase. The earth was without form, tohu, waste, desolate, chaos, and void. Vohu, void, waste, desolate is how you translate that. And it says darkness was on the face of the deep. Now, this is very interesting. What Moses is describing is a twofold tohu, bohu. And when you put the two words together in Hebrew, in all the context, it means divine judgment. That causes the chaos, that causes the desolation, that caused this to happen. So we see this in Jeremiah 4.23, Isaiah 34.11. 
When you put these two words together, this is not the exception to the rule. This is the rule. It indicates judgment has happened to the earth. Why? What's going on here? Something happened. Notice what it says, that darkness was on the face of the deep, that the darkness indicates judgment. There's no light anymore, that judgment has happened. Anytime you see the word darkness, it represents something has happened in the terms of judgment. When Jesus was on the cross, what happened at noon to three? Darkness hit the ground, hit the land, right? Because judgment was happening. Egypt was judged by darkness. The Antichrist's kingdom will be judged by darkness. It's a judgment. So now we have Tohu and Bohu. The earth has been laid waste. It's desolate. It's been judged. There's darkness, and it's over the face of the deep. Now, what is this deep? This deep is another element of judgment, and it has the connection of the salty deep, that these are the reference to the oceans, the primeval oceans that have covered over the hot arets, the land. The oceans are over it. Now, what you see in Scripture is there's a deep connection with the primeval deep and to dragons, whether it's you're dealing with Leviathan or Rahab, which is a sea dragon, or you're dealing with the serpent, the sea monster. You'll see those themes all throughout the Old Testament, and it will mention Leviathan and Rahab. These are mythical sea monsters related to this chaos of the primeval deep. And in, in the Babylonian literature, it's the name of the serpent is Tiamat, but it's related to a serpent and water as judgment. Now, interesting enough, when Noah's flood came, you see in that judgment, water was used to destroy the earth, right? Water was used. So now in the same context here, you have darkness and water being used. Guys, you cannot get past it. The tohu, bohu, the darkness, the deep are all elements of God's judgment. Something happened. Something happened between verse 1 and verse 2 to leave the earth in a desolate case. What happened? Who was judged? Why did the earth get judged? Who then, because verse 3 goes on and talks about the creation, the recreation of planet earth for man, who then was created before man? The angels. We are now looking in Genesis 1 and 2 at the outcome of the judgment of the satanic rebellion that happened. That's what's happening between Genesis 1 and 2. It is not a gap theory that gives dinosaur time. It's not what we're doing here. It's a time before the earth was recreated. How long this time lasted, we do not know. How long Satan and the angels stayed in their states in the way God created them before they fell and rebelled against them, we don't know how long this went. But it went on for some time, enough time for a lot of things to develop. Well, then let's unpack that. Let's unpack this satanic rebellion when Satan and his cohorts rebelled against God. So now we have to launch from Genesis 1-2, and we have to jump into the prophet Ezekiel chapter 28. So that will be the rest of the text for us. And it says, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And let's unpack that. The seal of perfection means that this, and he's referring to Satan. The seal of perfection means that he filled the entire blueprints that God created for him. We all have blueprints. Animals have blueprints. We have blueprints. They're called DNA. And what the scripture is saying is that Satan filled out when God created him the maximum of the blueprints. In what two areas? Well, it says he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Maxed out in wisdom, maxed out in beauty. Those are the two areas he was maxed out in his blueprint, which means he's the wisest of all creature beings. He is the most beautiful 
of all creatures that were ever made. And because of that, he is the highest ranked angel. We'll see that. And he had a lot of authority given to him. Believe it or not, angels were created prior to even Genesis 1-1. I want you to see this in Job 38, 4 through 7. In Job 38, 4 through 7, it says, Where were you, he's talking to Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So it's talking about the initial creation. Who determined this measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were the foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice this phrase right here. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, the Banacha Elohim, the sons of God refer to the angels. The angels were created prior to Genesis 1-1. They saw God create. They watched it all happen. And so this one angel, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, watched this happen. Let's continue back to Ezekiel, jump to verse 13, and it says this, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, you have to understand that when Ezekiel talks about this, he is not talking about the same Eden that Adam and Eve were in. That's different. Now, he did tempt them in the garden, but this is a reference to a earlier garden of Eden on planet Earth where he was there, and it was called the Garden of God. This is where what we call the divine council was held. You'll see references to that in the Old Testament, that there's a divine council, that God has counsel. And this is where the, he would meet with the angelic order, especially the high-ranking ones, and meet with them in his council. This is what's called in, in Eden the original earth. And the original earth was our planet, but it was in a different state, and we'll talk about that. But this is where Satan was placed at. He was in the garden and given authority over the garden and over our planet, along with the other angelic cohorts. That's what that God did initially. So the original galaxy, the original universe, was under the dominion of angels, Okay, And then we have to understand that. We have to understand that they're a creation before us. And this Garden of Eden is a gem-like garden. I want you to note this in the next phrases. He says, every precious stone was your covering. Now, a lot of people translate that and, and sometimes misunderstand that. They say, well, Satan had these coverings on him. It could be translated canopy. It's a canopy that there was a canopy around the earth, and the earth was very different than what it is today. It says, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold. These are ten stones. Jump to verse 14. I put that in the text so you can see what he was doing there in the garden of God. That his activity is that he walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. So all that to say is this. The original earth had a gem canopy. The original earth had fiery stones and gems for its ground. It was a gem earth, a gem garden, a mineral garden, if you want to call that, a mineral earth. And you think, well, that sounds kind of weird. It doesn't sound weird because how is the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem is a gem place. It is a mineral garden right? If you read Revelation 21 and 22, we just got done with, it's a mineral garden. That was how the original earth was. It had a canopy, and it says that Satan's activities went back and forth, which is a symbolic way of saying that he had his activities on this earth, on this planet, along with the other angels as well. But it's focusing on Satan because he's the leader. He's the one who rebelled. And again, it's sometimes hard to grasp this because this has never been taught. For some reason, no one wants to teach this. But you have to understand this is what was happening. And notice that the stones are very much like the New Jerusalem. And you can see the layers, the foundations and the layers. This is what the earth looked like. Well, this is what New Jerusalem looks like. 
Well, that's funny because remember in verse 1, I told you that Moses put in Bereshit into that word means the end is like the beginning. The end is like the beginning. We end in Revelation 21 and 22 in a gem city, in a gem mineral garden, but that's how it was in the beginning. And it's in the word Bereshit in Hebrew. But notice it's 10 stones, walks back and forth, which is activity. And again, he hasn't fallen yet at this point. Well, what was he doing? What is this activity that he's doing? What is this that he's involved in? Well, we have a clue. It's 10 stones, and it's 10 of the 12 stones that you would have on the high priest's breastplate. So if you look at the high priest in Israel, he had a breastplate. He has 12 stones instead of 10. And you can see it even in a closer shot. You go to the next one, you can see these stones, which represented obviously Israel. But if you go to the next picture, these are the stones obviously that we're talking about. They match with the stones mentioned on the original earth which could indicate that one of his functions is that Satan was a high priest. That Satan was a high priest to who? To the other angels. That he represented as a high priest the angels to God. Just like Israel's high priest represented people to God, and just like Jesus now is our Melchizedekian high priest that represents us to God, the original creation is that Perhaps Satan was the high priest of the angels based on the colors matching the high priest's uh, stones. That's not an accident. There's something there. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but something's there. Jump to Genesis 1 to b real quick about this face of the deep. When God judged everything, he judged the very ground, the planet, that Satan had authority over. And he judged it with water. He covered it up with water, this gem planet that was under Satan's authority. This is the same activity that God did once Adam fell. What did he do? He cursed the ground because of him. Cursed is the ground because of you, right? And we've been living under that curse that the planet is cursed because of us. This planet, this gem planet was also cursed And what God did is cover it with darkness and water so you couldn't see anything. So the idea of the stones, he walked upon the fiery stones. Why are they called fiery stones? That the stones emanated light and reflected light from what? The Shekinah glory from God. God was in the garden. That was where the divine council was at. And Satan ministered there to the divine council. And just like the New Jerusalem, as the stones reflect and refract the light of the Shekinah glory, so did the original Garden of Eden, the mineral garden, and the planet reflected the light of God all over the place through the stones. That's what the use of the stones are. So it calls, it's called the burning stones. It's the idea that light is coming out of them and it's coming from the Shekinah. So he was there in the garden with them. God had put his throne right there, and he would meet with them there. I know that's hard to imagine, but all you have to do is go one step further, because that's exactly what he was doing with Adam. Where was he meeting? He was meeting Adam in the garden once a day, right? And that's where the human council would be, so to speak. So it's the same pattern. Okay, that being the case, the earth then gets put under the salty abyss. No more to see the light. But let's go back to Satan then. Let's go back to what happened. Let's look at what the scripture says about him. It says that his workmanship of his timbrels and pipes was prepared for you, of your timbrels and pipes. Well, this could go both ways in translating this in Hebrew. It could mean musical instruments that were given to Satan, or it could mean to the settings for the gems on the planet or in the canopy. Either way, you're actually okay with the translation. Either way you can go, you can do that. If it is referring to the musical instruments, it possibly could lend itself as not only is he the high priest of the angels, but he was the one who led the worship of God from the angels. That worship, he was the the head guy for worship. 
possibly. Again, it can translate both ways, or we're simply talking about the sockets in which God put the gems on the planet. Either way, you're okay, but I can see that. I can see that Satan is given this high, high authority, not only being the high priest, but leading worship. And this says, this was prepared for you on the day you were created. So this was given to him and assigned to him the moment he was created. So just imagine he was created and then given all these assignments. He's given wisdom and beauty. He's given authority over the other angels. He's the head guy leading worship. And then it goes even further about his authority. In verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Anointed cherub. Let's unpack that. Now we understand what class of angel he's from. There's only three classes of angels. And we use the term angel as a broad brush, but that's probably not biblically accurate. At the top rung of these celestial beings, we call angels. The top rung is called cherubim. The second level is called seraphim. And the lower rung are simply called messengers or angels. So there's three levels to them. The top level is the cherubim. The reason they're ranked in order is how close they are to the throne. Cherubim are the closest to the throne. They are what hold up the throne. Seraphim surround the throne, and angels stand before the throne. So this is how close you are to to Elohim, Yahweh, determines your rank. Okay, So cherubim are the top guys. Let me show you some pictures of cherubim. I've shown you this in the book of Revelation. Most cherubim have four wings, and they have multidimensional parts of what we call animals. But remember, who was created first, angels or animals? The angels were. So when you look at an animal today, they actually reflect the angel. When you look at an eagle, when you look at a bull, when you look at any type of animal, they're patterned off of the angelic order. That's who they look like. And so the fact of the matter is they have different parts and you have a couple of them that look different. Some of them look like a man, but they have animal parts. Some look like a lion and they have wings and whatnot. And they have eyes all over them. It represents that they can see everything. Eagles. And then another one is like an ox that has wings and, and things. These are the most powerful creatures God ever created. And Satan is one of them. He's a cherub. But notice it says he's an anointed cherub. This is where we get the word Messiah. He's called the Messiah cherub? Yeah. He's the anointed cherub that's going to represent all of the angels. He is the high priest. He is the main guy anointed, set aside for this particular task that he's doing. And that being the case, it then says... You were the one who covers. Don't miss that one. You were the one who covers. He's the anointed Messiah cherub who covers. Okay. In the depictions in Revelation, you will see the throne of God, and four cherub will actually guard it and hold up the throne. There's four. It's missing one. It's missing Satan. The way God's throne is, the four cherub are underneath supporting the throne. But then God's throne has a canopy on top of it. You can see this in England. You can see this in ancient kings types of situations. They will always put a canopy above their throne. Guess who the canopy was? Do you get the picture? He's the canopy cherub. You have the four supporting the throne, but he's the one on top of the throne guarding it on the top. So God is sitting here, and Satan is above protecting the top of the throne as the covering or canopy cherub. And then there's four complete underneath God's throne. That's why when you go to the book of Revelation, the canopy cherub is gone, and there's only four supporting the throne. He's the canopy cherub. Do you not think that didn't play a part into his thinking? 
He's sitting on top of a throne. He's looking down in his position. He's getting the worship, giving it to Yahweh. He's the anointed cherub. He's the musical leader. He's the high priest. He's the most powerful cherub in beauty and wisdom. Mm. Keep thinking. Keep thinking. Wow. Verse 15. You're perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. You were perfect, which means this. He had no flaws. You can't blame God for what happened. He has no flaws. He was maxed out in his blueprint, and God created him. But he says, iniquity was found in you. This right here, guys, in the Bible, of all the passages, is the origin of sin right here. You can mark it down. This is where it happened. This is where sin arose, and it cropped up, and it it just says it was found in him. He was not created with a sin nature, but here now he has a sin nature. And the only thing we can come up with in theological terms to understand this, Satan and the angels and even us are image bearers. We're imagers of Yahweh, right? We're made in his image. Even angels are made in his image. What does that mean? We represent him. But one of the things that God gave us as image bearers is this. It is the ability to have contrary choice, and that contrary choice can go against our own nature. Satan was flawless, but because he was given the free will to make a choice contrary to his nature, he could choose to do wrong, and vice versa with us. We're born with a sin nature, but we still have the power of contrary choice, which means I can choose God... As he calls me, I can choose him because I have the power to choose against my own nature. So it's a power of contrary choice that has been given to angels and us. And that is that contrary choice is what caused the liability in him. And it is the liability in us. It is the liability in our kids is that free will and contrary to choice. I want you to think about this, and you have to think about it as a parent. Otherwise, you'll detach from Satan and God and the whole angelic conflict. I want you to think about it in this terms. God created his first family, the angels, and he gave his family the ability to choose contrary to him. Did God know Satan would do this? Absolutely. Did he know a third would follow him? Absolutely. And yet he still created him. Again, I don't want to do apples to apples, but it's the same decision you made as a parent. Are you going to have kids in this environment? Yeah, I guess so. And so you had them. And you took a risk. And what was the risk? I hope I raised them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and I hope they turn out well. But I have no control over the decisions they're going to make when they get older. And they could fly the coop on me. They can go AWOL on me. They can go crazy. They can go against everything I raised them to do. But why did you then, knowing that, decide to have kids? Because of the other blessings if they don't. Right? that they would love you and have a relationship with you and want you. And that would be a blessing to you, that relationship. It's the same reason. He created a family, and a third of his family rejected him. You have to keep that in mind. If you don't keep the familial thing in mind, you'll detach a little bit from all of this. But keep that in mind. You took a risk too. But God even took a bigger thing, uh, idea is that he already, he wasn't a risk. He already knew what was going to happen. That's different. That's very different. But yet he decided to do this. Wow. Then it, it gets worse. So iniquity is found in him. It starts in him. And then it, it spreads. This is the problem. Anytime something's inside somebody, it comes out of them. It's like a cancer. It's systemic. It just goes all over the place. No one can sin in isolation, and neither could this cherub. Neither could this cherub stay isolated. 
This is what he decides to do. Verse 16. By the abundance of your trading. The idea of trading is that he went from angel to angel telling them something. Slandering God. Telling them lies about God. This is where he became the father of lies. This is why Jesus labels him the father of lies because he went from angel to angel lying about God. Isn't it funny that when people get in trouble and they get into sin, what they want to do is build a cohort, build a a bunch of people to come on their side. And the way they do it is they lie about the other person. You know how bad they're treating us. He's treating me so bad. And then so they build an alliance against that person, but they do it through slander, lying. That's exactly what he did. He went from angel to angel doing this, lying against Yahweh. We'll see what he said in just a bit. And it says, and you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. The idea is he led the revolt of a third of the angels. He was able to convince a third of the angels to rebel against God and seal their dooms, so to speak, but they rebelled at that point in time. That explains why the earth is now, the gem earth was judged, because they had authority over it. And it says, therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. So the first thing you see is he loses his position. He loses his position as the guardian of God's throne, as the canopy cherub. He's no longer the high priest. He's no longer the leader of worship. He loses his position. And that's being said by the mountain of God. That's the idea of the mountain of God is the throne of God, okay? That's That's the area he's talking about. And he goes, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Now, that's a a second judgment on the earth because of him. And the idea is I destroyed you has to do with not like utterly destroying him, but, but destroying his position over specifically the fiery stones, which means that not only lost his position as a guardian cherub, he lost dominion of the mineral garden of planet Earth. God took it all away from him. So he's lost two things immediately that they're in two different abodes, the throne of God and the mineral garden. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up. The idea is pride right there. Because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So here's how it happened. If you want to detail this out, He fell in love with himself, of how beautiful he was. He didn't see that as a gift from God. He saw that it was innate in him. And that that pride of how beautiful he was, how how wise and, and, and powerful and all these positions he was given, corrupted his wisdom. What do you mean it corrupted his wisdom? He stopped thinking straight. It put him out of reality. He corrupted his wisdom. He's the most wise of all creatures, and yet he can't think straight anymore. This is why when people ask me, does Satan really believe he can win? Yes, he does, because his wisdom is corrupted. Think about this on a a human level. When humans have pride, it blinds them. I don't care how smart they are. If they, they fall in love with themselves, and we call that selfishness, and they think all the stuff in their life They gained. They're self-made. That God didn't give them anything. He didn't give them the opportunities. He didn't give them the skill set. He didn't give them all that. That they made themselves. The minute someone thinks, I made myself, you instantly go out of reality. Instantaneously. That's what happened to him. When he fell in love with himself, look how beautiful I am. Do you not realize that was a gift? Boom. His wisdom is now corrupted. Can't think straight. Have you been around somebody who has pride and they can't think straight? Absolutely. You see them all the time in politics. They just can't think straight, right? They're out of their minds. They're too big for their britches. Yikes. That's what happened to him. He goes, I cast you to the ground. This is what's called a prophetic perfect. It's a future that's stated in the past tense. This is what God's going to do. I'm going to cast you to the ground. And this is a direct reference to Revelation chapter 12 when he's eventually kicked out of heaven 
during the middle of the tribulation, and he's cast to the Haaretz, the earth. And it says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the devil knows his time is short. So he eventually gets kicked out of the heavenly abode. You think, what? He's in the heavenly abode? Yeah. Satan can still have an audience with God. In fact, he talks to God. In fact, most of the time, he spends his time accusing you and I to God. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. He also accuses Israel too, by the way. So they're lumped in with us. What's he accusing us of? Because it says day and night he's doing this about us. He's doing it over unconfessed sin. That's what he's doing it about. What do you mean? He can't attack you on your salvation. He's attacking you before God about your discipleship. And he's accusing you and I, if we have unconfessed sin and we're not dealing with it and we're not repenting, he's saying, you are obligated to do something to him. What do you mean? Well, it's in the form of discipline. It's the form of punishment. And Hebrews chapter 12 makes this abundantly clear. When we go with unconfessed sin and it goes for a prolonged period of time and you say, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to confess that because I'm really not doing anything wrong. And you just ignore it. And then you go out of reality. Guess what? Satan is up there saying, when are you going to do something? When are you going to do something? When are you going to do something? Because he's doing this and he's not asking for forgiveness. You are obligated to do something to him. And guess what? Eventually God will. And he will give you the whipping of your life in the woodshed. But the key is, if you sin, confess that because he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that being aside, you will stop the accuser of the brethren about you before God. There's another issue going on in the heavenlies. He wants to destroy you. So he thinks, well, I'll destroy them with unconfessed sin. I'll make you sin. And then I'll accuse you before God. Wow. He doesn't play fair, does he? I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And you think, well, there's no kings when this happened. Right? It's a prophetic perfect, which means it's a future, but it's spoken in the past tense, which means it's a direct reference to the lake of fire. The kings of the earth will see Satan thrown into the lake of fire, and they will gaze at him at that point in time. Verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. There's the idea of trading went from angel to angel. But what do you mean he defiled the sanctuaries? Oh, this gives us another clue of what heaven looks like. In heaven, there is a tabernacle, there is a temple, and that word sanctuaries refers to holy places. So this is where God's throne is, obviously. And this is what Moses patterned the tabernacle off of. This is what the temple of Solomon was patterned off of. And this is what the millennial temple will be patterned off of when Jesus makes it in the, in the, after the second coming. It is the heavenly tabernacle. And there's an altar of incense there. There's a throne. The menorah is there. Everything's there. In the heaven, that's the reality, and these were the shadow of things, and Hebrews chapter 9 points this out. Now, here's the deal. What did he do there? Well, it says, you defiled the sanctuaries. You defiled the holy place. Oh, he defiled heaven? Yeah, he did. Well, then, this makes sense, then, and when you read this passage... And this is Hebrews chapter 9. It's all linked together. You have to know that he defiled the sanctuaries to understand Hebrews chapter 9. Watch this. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What tabernacle are we referring to? The heavenly tabernacle or the heavenly temple. That's what Hebrews is referring to. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered where? The most holy place once and for all. Again, context, the most holy place is not here on earth. I mean, we'd have the holy holies in the temple and the tabernacle. The real holy of holies is the one in heaven. He entered in with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this is interesting. Most people don't pick up on this. Jesus took his own blood to heaven 
to cleanse the heavenly temple, is what Hebrews is saying. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission, he talks about. And then in verse 23, he says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things, the heavenly temple themselves with better sacrifices than these, ergo, the blood of the Messiah. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, it's not human, it's God, which are copies of the true, but in heaven itself, the heavenly temple, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of Hebrews assumes you know that Satan defiled the heavenly tabernacle. And what cleansed the heavenly tabernacle is Jesus' blood, that Jesus actually took it up there and cleansed it with his own blood. Now, most people don't talk about that because it seems, wow, that seems, I've never heard that. Yeah, I know, but it's there. I don't know what you do with that passage. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand what Satan did in heaven. And now the dots start connecting. Okay, that being the case, here's the deal. What did Satan tell himself? What did he traffic with? What did he say from angel to angel about God and about himself? Well, it started in his own thinking, and then he, he spread it. We got a clue. It's Isaiah 14. How have you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? His name's really not Lucifer. That's kind of the way we say it, and it's a Latin translation, but it's really Hellel. His name is Hellel, the shining one or the day star, son of the morning. So really, Satan's not his real name. Satan is his activity. He's an adversary. His name is Halel ben Shakar. He's the morning star, son of the dawn. That's his name. That's the cherub we're dealing with, that we call Satan or the devil. Okay? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and here's what he said, and this is what he trafficked with. I will ascend into heaven. First I will. What is this? What is he saying? I will ascend into heaven. It's the idea that I will sit on God's throne in place of the Messiah. The only one in Scripture that is allowed to sit on God's throne is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But he says this early on, before the whole rebellion goes down that I'm going to sit on the throne. Do not think for a moment in the divine council that the angels didn't understand the plan of God and what he was going to do in order to create us, send the Messiah, and what the Messiah did. They know it all because it's reflected in what he is saying. He's going to sit on the throne, not the Messiah. Jesus said in Revelation, I'm on my Father's throne, right? Huh. The second I will, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. What's that? What are the stars of God? That's a metaphor. That's an allusion to the other angels. The stars of God, the stars represent angels. You'll see all through the scriptures, stars are, uh, especially in, in certain contexts, are referring to angels. And that's how they thought in the ancient world, and that's what they're represented by. What Daniel chapter 12 says, we will shine in the resurrection as stars. We will shine like the angels. We'll have a luminescent feature about us. But he wants to be above all the angels. That's what he, so, and one of the issues, he wants to dispose Michael, the archangel. He doesn't like Michael having that authority. He wants Michael's authority. He wants the rest of the angels under him. That's the second I will. The third I will. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. Now, that's classic messianic talk. So, again, another issue is he understands the plan of God fully for man and the Messiah. What do you mean? To sit on the congregation farthest to the north or the mount of the congregation is to sit in Israel on Mount Moriah on David's throne. 
The farthest side to the north is the northern part of Mount Moriah. And guess where the northern part is? It's where Abraham took Isaac. It's where David bought the threshing floor, where the temple would be built. And it's where one day Messiah will rule and reign this earth from that very location. And he's saying, I'm going to lead the congregation and now I'm going to sit on the farthest sides to the north. Won't you think about that? He knows the plan. We just got done studying the book of Revelation. Do you know what the connection to this is? He's going to be able to do it for three and a half years. But he can't use himself. He's got to use someone else. Do you know who that person will be? Who will go to Israel, go into their holy place, and declare himself God. Antichrist, right? He already said this before mankind was even created. He says, I'm going to sit in Mount Zion. I'm going to be right there. And he does for three and a half years through the Antichrist who claims himself to be God. Wow. The plan has been very ageless. I mean, it's been going on for a long, long time. The last one is this. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. The idea is the heights of the clouds doesn't mean the atmospheric. The clouds are the Shekinah clouds. He wants the clouds. He wants the glory clouds. And God says, I do not share my glory with another. But he wants the Shekinah you think, this is a hard thing that for us as human beings to grasp. But in the next life, the ability to shine is a big deal. And I can't get my arms around it, but it is a major deal. Because angels want the ability to shine. Because it, it, it's similar to how God's light shines. Interesting enough that we will have a luminescent feature in the next life as well. Based on what we do here... In our rewards, some of us will shine better than others. Some of us will have a more luminescent feature. And it all reflects the Shekinah glory. So in that economy, in that world, shining is a big deal. And Satan says, I want his. I want his light, which is a light associated with God. He says, I want that. Wow. What's the end results? What's the consequences? I know this is long, but hang with me. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. The idea is you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. It devoured you. This is a future prophetic idea that it devoured you and turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So it's a direct reference that the lake of fire is his final destiny. Verse 19, and all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. So they'll see him in the lake of fire burning with the rest of people who followed them and the angels who followed him. You have become a horror or a terror and shall be no more forever. The idea is that he's immortal, but his activities will cease and he will no longer have any, any activity outside of the lake of fire. So he ceases being in that sense. He doesn't cease to exist. He ceases his activities because he's confined in the lake of fire. And you think, whoa, I didn't know that was in verse 2. Yeah, I know. That's a long way to get there. But guys, I'm telling you, that's the only reason you could have a tohu bohu darkness and deep that hit the planet because of what he did. Now, let's bridge this to application and we'll finish up. That's a lot. And you drank from a fire hose today about the fall of Satan, but you have to understand this stuff. What's the application? How do you make this? Uh, well, it's, a, it's certain principles that God is showing you through pattern, okay? You will constantly see a pattern with God that he creates. His creatures rebel. He judges, okay? He, he creates. They rebel. He judges. It's the same pattern. But I want you to start thinking in terms of familial, Okay, familial. God created two families, his angelic family, and then he creates human families, and he wants them to actually live together. The problem is, in both creations, 
both sets of families rebelled. A third over here, and the majority of humanity has rebelled against their own creator because he's given them the power of free will and to make that, that choice to go contrary to their nature and go contrary to God. That's kind of a hard pill to swallow when you think about that as a parent and you think, I'm going to have these kids and a good portion of them are going to rebel against me and actually hate me and come against me and try to fight everything I'm doing. But I, I still create them. This is where, and this is a hard one to understand. A lot of bad things can happen to you in this life. And for a lot of you sitting here, a lot of stuff has happened to you. And it can create an attitude of saying, you know what? I'm just going to stop now. I'm just going to stop loving now. I'm just going to stop doing stuff now. It's not worth it because every time I try, I get rejection. So I'm not going to have good relationships. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take risks in my life and try to befriend people. I'm just going to stay shut up in my little life. That, my friends, is the exact opposite of what God does. He creates, he loves, they reject, and he still goes for, and he still loves, and he still seeks relationship with people. He doesn't withdraw because he could easily say, I don't need this. I don't even need these angels. I don't need human beings. I'm perfectly satisfied within the Trinity. I don't need any of these. But why does he do it? Because relationship is king to him. Relationship is king. His love drives him past knowing what's going to happen. His love drives him to this relationship with you and I. It's amazing to think of that in those in theological terms, that he still loves the people who reject him. Wow. So, my friends, the takeaway is this. What chaos has someone caused in your life? Was it a child that grew up and just rebelled against you? Was it a sibling? Was it a parent? Who was it? Because you have a decision at that point. Either I'm going to allow them to destroy my, my world and create this chaos that they created and just stay stuck, or I'm going to push past that and start over again. That's the pattern in Scripture. Adam, Noah's flood, Tower of Babel, it's the same pattern. He starts over again, and he keeps the hope alive. Follow God's pattern and watch your life change. If you stay stuck in the chaos, in chaos you will remain. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.